When the design phase is complete, an interior designer's job is just getting started. As you head into the construction phase of a project, whether new construction or a renovation, the logistics can get tricky. Most states won't let you technically project manage your contractors, so construction oversight is the new industry standard. Today, Los Angeles-based interior designer Katie Hodges walks us through the logistics of bringing your designs to life through overseeing construction. Hello, Katie. Welcome to the show. This is a big moment for me because we've never actually gotten to connect before. I'm so excited. It's so nice to meet you. This is super exciting. I really dug into your questions beforehand and did a lot of homework based off of questions our listeners have sent in. And so we have a little bit of background and then we're really going to get into overseeing construction and the construction management phase of the process that I feel can be really overwhelming and scary to people. And so we're really grateful for your expertise here. I'm I'm so happy to talk about this as part of my day-to-day. Let's do it. (laughs) Well, first of all, we want to congratulate you on your new baby. This is a huge time of transition for you to find your new normal. As principal designer and business owner, what did maternity leave look like for you? I didn't. I did not have one, unfortunately. It was not in the cards for me, just with the way that projects were timed and like needing to make money and like feed this child and myself. I, I couldn't. It, it just was not at the point. You know, you can't time when you get pregnant, really. So I, of course, managed everybody's expectations on, you know, how quickly I'll reply, but we were hot on two construction projects. And I had to be available pretty much like two days postpartum. Wow, that's amazing. And also, I'm sorry that you didn't get time, but it's also really refreshing to hear someone say that, like, I didn't get to do that as a business owner. You know, it doesn't look like six months paid time off. So, talk us through what your team, if there was any, were there pre baby during your non-existent leave and where you're at now? Like who's on your team? How many people are there? Are they full-time? Is a contract? Yeah, of course. I have one full-time in-house senior designer project manager right now. Definitely like downsized a little bit knowing baby was coming. We have pretty much a full-time bookkeeper and then we have freelance people doing some drafting and, you know, drawings as needed, but pretty much on the ground, it's myself and my right hand at the moment. But it fluctuates just depending on our project load. Yeah, definitely. Super interesting that you say you have an almost full-time bookkeeper. Is that person managing like your, for instance, studio designer software, your software like that? So they're doing all of the accounting for your projects as well? Yes, exactly. So they, you know, not only update studio, but constantly reconciling. They're sending invoices to clients as well. And getting those prepared, making sure the language is correct, inputting all our time billing, just ensuring that everything is right, applying retainers, that is in and of itself is a full-time job. There's always also questions about, you know, did you mean to overpay this vendor or underpay? You know, there's a conflict here, conflict there. So they're constantly managing the books because, you know, as we all know, a lot of money runs through interior design firms and we take that very seriously. Yeah, huge amounts and huge liabilities for you as a small business too. One thing that I think is so unique about you and your journey to where you are now is that you spent time at other design studios before opening your own firm. How important do you feel 
that step really was? That's a great question. I mean, I only had like three, four years experience at other studios. And then why well, say only just because I know some people had spent, you know, 10 plus years. Then I worked in home staging for about two years. But do I think it's important? In my journey, I think it was not as important as the experience I had on the ground on my own. But I had enough of a foundation to know what I'm talking about too. So I don't personally think that you can't do it without some experience, but I felt so confident and had a structure, a foundation, or if I knew, you know, this is what I'm billing or this is how I'm billing it because I had that example from others that there was, you know, not even a, 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 a morsel of doubt in my voice or in my mind that this is how it's done. Whereas I think if I didn't have that, maybe clients could have driven me in a direction that would have, you know, steered the project in the wrong way. So for what is experience is always great. Like, let's just put it this way. 100% isn't necessary. No. Very beneficial, though. So in addition to your four-ish years experience at another studio, did you have, like, technical education in design? Or were you hired there and really learned design concepts at that phase? It's just such an interesting story to discover how people got to where they are and people are always weighing, especially if it's their second career, like, do I need to go back and get a degree? Obviously very state to state, but just kind of like what that technical background looked like for you. Well, I did not go to school for it. I was pursuing a medical degree in college when I realized that this is what I wanted to be doing. And it was definitely not conventional. I was pretty young because I was just out of college, like 23 when I realized it, starting my master's degree in speech language pathology, like totally random, but like side note, my parents made me do it. Like (laughs) I come from an immigrant family and it was like security, 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 you know, get a degree, like clock in, clock out, get a paycheck. Anyway, I got a job as a personal assistant and this exposed me to a world I never knew before, you know, of like luxury services. She had a stylist, she had me as her assistant, and then they were also building their home. So I, for the first time, saw what that even looked like. Like, I I never even knew people got paid money to do fun things like styling or picking up samples. Like, at the time, it looked like fun. So it pretty much rocked my world. And I just decided that it was something that I wanted to pursue. I didn't know it was 100% interior design at the time. I did, like, personal styling. I took internships in PR an ad agency, like working on like Saturn cars at the time, you know, all these random things. But when I got my interior design internship, because I was very interested in her home building process, like when I was picking up samples and then hustling contractors, you know, on her timeline or making sure this was up for the owners to review, I knew that was something that I really gravitated towards. But it was when I got the internship, did I really feel like I like landed at home? Like this is a hundred percent what I need to do. But at my internship, there were girls that went to school that were doing AutoCAD and they always had an edge over me or like, you know, say things like, I'll quickly whip up that elevation. I'm like, what the hell is an elevation? Like, what is going on? (laughs) So I've always been very resourceful and, you know, can kind of see what I'm missing. And this was clearly one. I got a tutor uh, from the UCLA like extension program that came over three times a week in the evenings. And taught me AutoCAD until I felt comfortable enough to show my boss that I could do like a floor plan. And then it's just once you sort of 
start doing it. You have to just keep practicing, practicing. So on the technical things, completely self-taught, which is really obvious to those when they see my, my, my files, because there are things that I'm missing. Like I still don't know how to set up an AutoCAD file, but boy, do I draw a mean kitchen? You know, there are definitely <laughs> gaps in my skill set, but I've always just kind of been scrappy and get it done. And resourcefulness is the most important thing here. So you have a full-time designer, project manager. Do Does your designer do your CAD files now? Do you outsource that? Or are you doing it, girl? <laughs> it is all of the above. It depends on how fussy I'm feeling over something. Like I'm so tactile in my drawings that sometimes it's just easier for me to go in and like play around with the offsets or play around with a certain dimension rather than like 10 emails back and forth on like sync size or, you know, leg width or something. So I think, you know, I'm really involved and it's not uncommon for me to take a file over, mess it all up and then be like, okay, I got it to where I want. Now, you know, do all the annotations and you know, publish. Yeah. You make it work. When you were first starting your own studio, were you doing your own cat at that point or did you hire that out right away? I was doing pretty much all my own CAD, but I did, We ha- my first project was like a little bit too big for me to handle solo. So I did actually, I was outsourcing a little bit more because I was just doing everything. I didn't have a bookkeeper. I didn't have an assistant. So that, that I did at the time outsource and, and I still do it like whenever I need to, it's just always there for me. That's amazing. And do you have someone that like you always go to, or is there a resource that you recommend people go to find this person who can just come on for like a single project type of situation? I have two people that I reach out to, to ask, you know, are you available to do this for Mm -hmm. me? That's those two are my go-tos. Then for furniture, what I've had really, and this is a little bit for construction as well, is I've gone on Upwork actually, Mm. like Upwork.com. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Um, but yeah. we have somebody on call constantly that just like whips up a quick thing for me. And that's just been so, such a wonderful resource. Again, resources, <laughs> that is the most important thing. Um, but I do love doing my own elevations. I'm not going to lie. Well, that is super helpful, Katie. Thank you for sharing that. Upwork, we will put that in the show notes. But we, I mean, we use Upwork at our own studio for graphic design stuff or actually podcast editing, to be honest, when we're in a bind. And so it's really nice to be able to just get someone who can pick up a project and you don't have to take on even a part-time person and really have that responsibility. So let's talk construction because this is where you really, really shine. And it's so obvious when we look at your beautiful portfolio. One of your most notable differentiators is your commitment to extraordinary construction oversight and depth of experience working with architects and contractors. I imagine so much of your expertise is simply earned by years of on-site experience, as you mentioned, but what key steps do you take to maximize the chances of an extraordinary level of construction execution? Like, What are the things that you're like, we are always watching this throughout the entire project to make sure it's done right? That's such a great question. And I think the first thing that comes to mind is just this little saying that I constantly repeat, clarify, verify. We're constantly clarifying, verifying. I request, of course, shop drawings for every everything. Um, I request samples, tile layouts, anything and everything that be, can be clarified and verified. But the first thing that came to mind was shop drawings. And people are so hesitant 
to give these to us and we will fight tooth and nail to get them. What is a shop drawing? Let's strip it back. So we provided what our design is to this contractor. What is it that we're asking for when he asks for a shop drawing? When we're asking for a shop drawing, what I'm asking for is the, let's say, cabinetry person's interpretation of my drawing, knowing their skill set, their tools, even their drills. Like sometimes we ask for profiles and they're like, especially on custom crowns, like we don't have a drill bit for that or I don't even know how to execute this. So it's really just our design intent and then their execution they need to meet. And sometimes we need to negotiate in the middle where something isn't clear or, you know, they're not capable of doing it. Or if they flag that an appliance is bigger than what we have drawn, for example, like if it needs some more clearance, like on a coffee maker recently, it needed a bit more depth. Like We're like, okay, great. You're doing your job. We're doing ours. And together we're going to nail this. So there's no issue upon install. Amazing. Do with your level of projects and the scope of work you're providing, do you have specific contractors and architects that you recommend to your clients? Have you built up that black book or are your clients coming to you and say, I already have an architect. I already have a contractor. And if that's the case, how do you control that to ensure that those trades that you did not particularly set up can execute the project to what you're expecting? The honest answer is, is I cannot hundred percent make sure that somebody is doing their job well. And I think that has taken me years to just even be able to say that out loud. Um, just thinking of a couple examples where I'm like, look, I cannot physically build it for this person that has been hired to do it. So they need to get fired and that needs to get rebuilt. Bottom line, like I, I cannot, I'm not there to do it. So of course we don't want it to get to that point, but it's just very clear to me when I meet a contractor, usually it's very clear to me when somebody, you know, can walk the walk, not just talk the talk. For the caliber of clients that you work with, do you typically have specific contractors and or architects that you're recommending for the project or are they coming to you and already have a team in place and you're this like third party they're bringing in? If that is the instance, how do you help guarantee that your designs are executed the caliber that you would expect? Usually our clients bring in their own contractor. I have brought my own people in before that I've worked with in the past, but it does become a little bit of like not a liability, but you know, you never you never know how that relationship's going to go. So I've sort of learned like you can recommend people, but ultimately I think the client needs to choose their contractor and interview even if I recommend somebody interview other people, just that decision comes from them. I don't want to be in the position anymore because I have been. This comes from, you know, very painful experiences where now you're responsible for the contractor. So having said that, we absolutely work with contractors that we've never worked with before, always just telling the client, just keeping it real. Like, you know, I'm sure you've hired somebody amazing. We're going to, you know, work with them and deliver what's needed. Let's have a check-in. If something isn't going right, we're going to be honest with you for having, you know, issues with collaborating with contractors. Not everybody likes working with designers either. And we do ask our clients to, you know, quiz the contractor about, you know, how are they on email? Do they like Dropbox? Do they have a printer? 
just things like that, because you can't expect to stick two random people in a room and just expect them to, you know, work really well together. 99%, I'd almost say 100% of the time we do, but it just doesn't come super easy when it's a stranger. And of course, I tell clients that they're, contractor is accountable for execution and we will do everything in our power to make sure that the design intent is very clear and that there's an open channel of communication. That is such a good point, Katie. I've never considered the potential, not legal, but like social liability of you recommending a contractor and then suddenly you are stepping more into this project management role, which I know in California is not something that you can even do legally uh, to project manage your contractor. But the concept of having them source, pick out, interview, and hire their own contractor, it's very clear that liabilities that come up with the contractor are not your liabilities. So I really appreciate you really outlining that for people. How does your construction oversight differ from contractors you've worked with before to contractors you've never worked with before? Like what is that initial conversation that you have with them? What are you handing a new contractor that looks different than maybe someone you've, you know, been through this before? Well, I think that people I've worked with before, and this is for contractors and subs as well. Sometimes we don't have a general contractor and client hires subs directly that we usually actually refer because I do have more subcontractors like cabinetry people that I put clients in touch with versus contractors. Anyway, I of course, anybody I've worked with in the past, we have a shorthand. I say things like, remember last time I didn't like that, that wood grain on that plain slice oak, that was too busy. And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 we won't use that next time. You know, there's just little cute things like that just from knowing people. But for the most part, it all stays the same. It's elevations, floor plans, material schedules, site visits, clarifying any questions, samples does not change across the board. Fantastic. So your client's getting the same level of execution and service and documentation, no matter if they're bringing their contractor to the table or it's someone you've worked with in the past. This October, we are headed back to the Santa Monica Proper Hotel for Design Camp 2023. Join designers from around the world as we go in-depth in small group breakout sessions and large keynotes covering topics like systems and processes, design presentations, maximizing profitability, marketing that converts, updated software solutions, and so much more. Meet celebrity designers Bria Hamill, Chango & Co., and Caitlin Fleming while we dine al fresco under the stars. Design Camp is loaded with surprises and a lifetime of friendships. Don't miss our final event of the year. Visit www.design-camp.co to secure your spot. Where in this process are you fitting your design discovery meeting where you get measurements and floor plans? Do you use a local draftsperson, the contractor on the project, or your own team to get those initial as-builds? Initially, we'll request the from the client if the house came with plans. And we use that at least as just like for formatting to have the layout and give us a cheat sheet of what's what. But we pretty much always do our own measurements unless it's a full house measure. Then we'll have uh, somebody come in and do actual like as builds. And it's just a cut and dry service. Perfect. And you just hire that for the day and they just knock it out. 
Exactly. But nine times out of 10, I'd say that we just kind of room by room measure because there's things I want to get to know in a room as well, or my senior designer that are like little intimate details about like how far the firebox is off the ground, things like that. So you sometimes just want to be in the space with your tape measure to figure it out. When you're working with tradespeople like your cabinet builder, does your cabinet builder also come in and do their measurements or are you at that point providing the measurements that your team took and those are final and that's what it's built off of? Oh, no, 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 no. All of our drawings are like contractor to verify measurements, KHD not responsible for measurements. Absolutely do not rely on us for measurements. And I will tell them straight up that our measurements are probably wrong. So they need to go on site and verify. Even if we did measure perfectly, things like drywall thickness and and stuff that, you know, ends up happening down the line, they need to double check for their own work. So yes, we do not. Our drawings are not to build. They're just for design. That is a huge relief to, I'm sure, everybody listening. So it's amazing that you have that in your contract and you have that in everything that you deliver to your contractors. So let's talk about documentation. Talk us through your construction documentation. What does it look like as in, are they Excel spreadsheets? Are they PDFs? Are they working? Are they Dropbox and saved all final? And then you update them as they go. How is it delivered to your client? your team, and then also how is it handed over to either your trades or your general contractor? There is no one way that we do it, depending on the client and the contractor and the subs. We know some subs will not go into a Dropbox, like no matter what, or don't even check their email, or they don't even have an email. So we do print a lot of things and hand it over to contractors and subs. We do have a Dropbox for those contractors that love email, which is always great, but we still just end up printing things as well because, you know, there's so many revisions and sometimes, you know, mark it up like old school pen and paper, you know, to clients, we present in print, usually printout form, the initial concept, and we walk through the space and kind of look at the elevation, have it right in front of us so they can start visualizing it. And then when we have revisions, we usually just end up emailing them especially some clients don't live in the city that we're working in. You know, it could be their vacation home, like one we're working on right now. So then we just send emails individually, like approval request, kitchen, you know, island cabinetry edit, send that PDF. Perfect. So when you're sending that PDF over and you're getting a revision approval request, For your process, is just an email response saying approved. Is that enough documentation for you? Are you sending it through any sort of like client management software to get like a signature on it? Or is it just an email back and forth? It's for the most part, email back and forth. I think there is, I think there is value to having those like very cut and dry, you know, approvals. But it, we have really intimate relationships with clients. And after a while, you just sort of have a shorthand. And, and, and we also don't send every little change that happens for client approval. You know, if we like change a cabinet from 20 to 24, that doesn't warrant an approval. So we, we sort of gauge it on the client. Then if you feel like a client is particularly anxious or something like that, or maybe really wishy-washy or forgetful, then I think we will request a signature every once in a while and be like, okay. Or if they suggest something that I really disagree with, um, mm. then 
think it's one of those things where I I don't think it's going to be bad, but I advise against it. Are you sure? Can you please sign off on this? Like send back a signed, you know, and usually they'll change their mind if I ask that at that point. (laughs) Yes. That's a strong message while being very serving to your client, but you're like, I really don't like this suggestion. Thank you. (laughs) In my crystal ball, I see this not working out, but hey, let's try it. It's your house and we'll deliver what you're asking for. We just need a signature. (laughs) How often are you typically updating those construction docs after designs have been approved? So your design phase is over, you're on site and, you know, profiles are changing or there was an extra four inches. On average, do you do it every single time a change has happened? Or is it like once a week we'll go through, update the master files with everything that happened that week? And maybe that was six little revisions. We do it pretty much as we go and as needed. I think it would be a lot harder to keep track of a lot of the little changes and do it all at once. So if we get a clarification from somebody that a change needs to be made, we make it pretty much right away and then date stamp the change in our doc in our AutoCAD file. Maybe not export or publish, but just keeping it save as new version. So according to our Dropbox, I think we make changes every day, one way or another, you know, or updating a knob. I mean, just, or a a hinge, you know, we just keep everything in there and update on the go. How often is your team doing site visits? I know you gave an example of it's not always like in the city that you are living in. What cadence are you visiting a project throughout the construction process? Is it like, you know, when concrete's poured and framing goes up and then it becomes a lot more frequent or are you like there every week, no matter what? In the beginning when it's, especially pre-framing, I don't even think we're there much at all. Really no need. When the framing is up, that's kind of the exciting part where we definitely come by and we will also verify our measurements from the plan. There's always something that changes or the architect's plans have changed and we don't know about it. So that's a really important walkthrough. Or you just feel the space and go, you know what, never mind, a built-in should not go there. Just different things like that. And it'll it'll ebb and flow. I think after that framing walkthrough, there'll be another pause for a while. Then we come back when plumbing roughs go in, probably when electrical roughs go in, do an art, you know, a electrical walkthrough. So then again, nothing for a while. And then of course, towards the end of the project when the tiles start going in and the the cabinetry goes in. Oh, every week, twice a week, just depends. Here's like the big ticket question. How do you bill for construction oversight? Are you billing this at hourly? If you charge hourly for design, is this flat rate? Is it included in your design fees? This is the part that everybody's like, there's so many different ways to do it. What have you found to be best for you? Hourly, hourly, a thousand percent hourly. There is, there's not a chance on earth, I would ever do it not hourly because there are so many variables that could change that could totally screw me. I mean, there's no way that you can put a flat fee, especially if you're working with contractors and subs you don't know. How am I to know that they don't need handholding through everything? I mean, we end up doing a lot of work for our contractors as they're almost like assistants sometimes. And the client's like, yes, please get it done. Do what's needed. And how can I know that at kickoff? Can I backtrack a little bit for, are you hourly for your design phase as well? Um, Depends on the project for construction. We've done it many different ways. If it's a large scale construction project, it'll be a flat design fee 
for the conceptual design. That's us. That's not even, that's not AutoCAD or you know, elevations, anything like that. It's just like coming up with the vibe, the the general style of cabinetry, the tiles, you know, those things. And then that'll be a flat design fee. And then it'll be hourly, what I call the uncontrollables, like which is AutoCAD, because you don't know how many revisions you're going to need based on, you know, client pickiness or, you know, edits. If, you know, a client can never also tell you that they're going to be requiring a ton of edits. So you can add in your questionnaire, like, are you pretty decisive? Or, you know, do you require, you know, a lot of, you know, handholding or, or whatnot? And everybody will be like, oh my God, I'm so easy going. But then, no, you know, since someone else, something someone else completely comes out, uh, you know, with the red lines and, and marking up your drawings, you're like, okay, I'm so happy we didn't do a flat fee. Because at the end of the day, everybody needs to be accountable for their own actions. And that's something I talk about with clients a lot when I sell you know, the way that we bill, which is flat fee for the things I can control, which is my design work. So if it takes me, you know, if I'm in a design block and I'm on Pinterest for 20 hours, that's my, that's on me, not on you really. But now if you're getting, you know, trigger happy with the red Sharpie redlining or your contract doesn't contractor doesn't check emails and actually doesn't even check anything, just wants to get in, get out and doesn't do a great job to put it frankly and we need to be on site twice a week they need to be accountable held accountable we cannot pay for their incompetence that so I'm very cut and dry on it no no way am I gonna go negative on a job yeah 100 and it doesn't matter how many projects you have in the books to like try to guess what that flat rate is like it There's too many variables. Since you've been so generous with your pricing model, how do you do install? Is that flat rate hourly still? For installs, we've done it two ways. Is we have, especially for really juicy projects, done it. The install days is inclusive of the whole package. And I sort of factor in that that's in my best interest because I want the project. And it's it is also outlined in my contract, like how many days will be kind of included, like three-day install included. Anything beyond that, you know, is hourly. Um, and I do that because sometimes clients will request, you know, partial installs or not all the furniture will be delivered. So then you end up having like multiple rounds of install or an accessories phase, you know, after the initial install. So I always, in, I do usually include, uh, especially for in-town projects that are juicy, certain amount of days on the install. And so when you say you're including it, that's in that initial flat design fee number? Yeah, exactly. Got it. Yeah. I'll say this number includes three days for install. Perfect. That's amazing. Okay. So every contractor is super different and some contractors like to order hard surface materials and some don't. What is your policy? Are you flexible on it? And when it comes to ordering, how do you ensure again that that is effectively executed if you aren't the one doing the ordering? I would say eight times out of 10, we order everything. And I have had contractors order things before too, but ultimately the client will choose. And this is how I sell it is if we are doing the ordering, you do not pay hourly for the logistics or anything around that order quoting, getting samples, et cetera, because our procurement fee covers that. And then if the contractor is ordering, we will need to charge hourly for providing schedules, 
And so, you know, so on. And we do still need to get the quotes for them for the most part, because especially with specialty finishes, like how will they know, you know, that I want the lever on the toilet to match the rest of the finishes, you know, on the plumbing, like they don't take it to that level. But I tell the client that contractors also have a markup. So I think that your money is better spent with like my OCD team, you know, that is always on their computer, has a shorthand with the subs than the contractor. And of course, I don't do that to, you know, you know make the contractor lose out on money because I, I imagine that, that would probably trigger somebody. They're usually pretty happy to not be doing that anyway. However, okay, so- things- No, please go ahead. However, what's the however? Tell me everything. (laughs) However, this is what I'm saying. Everything. I mean the stuff I care about. The tiles, the lighting, the slabs, the hardware, including like door hardware, not just cabinetry hardware. Those are the things I care about. And they are big ticket items that are very specialty at times. The contractor does not want to deal with that, especially approving like handmade tile, you know, strike offs. Like they have no business in that. But however, the contractor is very happy to hear that I don't want to order canned lighting. I don't want to order hardwood flooring. I don't care. I don't want to order doors or windows, although I have, but <laughs> and when I really had to. So I think that once they kind of realize, okay, I'm going to be making a little bit less money, but the big stuff is still profitable for me, then they kind of ease up. Silly question, but paint, you usually have the contractor placing that order and picking that up? Yeah. Yeah. Paint, like don't care, paint, whatever. You know, I I can't nickel and dime my profits. It's not even about that for me. It's about control. Yeah. (laughs) 100%. So when you've done the ordering and you're sending the build materials, like fixtures, plumbing, et cetera, are you sending that to your receiving warehouse or do those materials go straight to the site? Most of the time we're sending it to the receiving warehouse. Mm-hmm. Or including, our including tile? Yes, including tile, depending on okay. the timing of it, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, if we order a tile that like is made out of state and has a long lead time, we'll just automatically put it to the receiving warehouse because we just kind of want it done and that order executed. But if a tile is getting cut locally, first we'll try to store it with the person that's cutting it for X amount of time and then deliver it to site. But if that's not possible, then it'll go to a receiving warehouse, then to site. We sort of just sort of feel it out how to minimize fees for our client and then also not risk damage to things sitting on site too long. Certainly. And so when you have, for instance, tile or even fixtures sitting at the receiving warehouse, does your receiver then deliver it for you or would your contractor go pick it up from the receiving warehouse when they're ready for it? Not the con- We have never had a contractor pick up from a receiving ha- warehouse. Uh, part of our like procurement fee service is coordinating all the logistics. So we will have, sometimes the receiving warehouse will deliver it to site, but if we think we know a mover that's you know, not that expensive. They'll just, a third party will pick up from them and take it to the warehouse. We've also picked up things every once in a while. Like if it's hardware, you know, we, we re- everything is just case by case, how to be smart with our time and our clients' money. Really, that's all it comes down to. Brilliant. Thank you so much. How does your construction management process differ for distance design clients? Like, are you doing a lot of clients that are not necessarily in the general Southern California region, or even though, you know, you can be in Southern California and still hours away from you. Are you 
differing that process at all as far as like how often you can be on site, what kind of documentation you're getting, if you're requiring FaceTimes three times a week, like how do you handle that when it's not somewhere you can get to easily? Yeah, absolutely. A great question. Uh, Site visits are reduced for sure. Um, We sort of figure out what are the benchmark points when we need to absolutely be there. And then depending on the scope of the project, like if it's really, if it's a huge project, then we do request FaceTimes, like when cabinetry goes in or when the contractor is at the work workroom checking on built-ins or photos, we'll have a shared album, whatever we can do to just constantly stay connected. Um, but yeah, of course, our involvement is less great then. So we just make sure that the contractor has a good project manager that can do the job that we would kind of be doing more if it was a local client. So we, it is, it is more of a distance physically. And I think, you know, mentally as well, you're just not, you're not there. You don't know what's going on. When you're talking about the times that you feel are like non-negotiables to do site visits, as you mentioned, you were saying, right. As framing goes up and then when plumbing is rough and when lighting is rough as well. Are those things that you would make a trip for or would it be kind of at the end of those three? It would probably be the first initial framing if it was a substantial project out of town. Initial framing, 100%, would never miss that. Um, and, and and usually, I, and actually, usually I can clump a, a initial framing with plumbing electrical at the same time. It, d- it depends maybe on the team involved. If there's an architect that's done his own visit and feels everything is good, you know, then he has ownership or she has ownership over that. But yeah, I, I guess it would be framing walkthrough no matter what should be done and then plumbing electrical on their own at that same time. Then you can go through the first round of materials because the site will be ready for that. Amazing. So you have so much experience and I feel like you've been so open with your lessons. Are there any hiccups in the process that you have learned to anticipate and you're like, we're going to avoid that? And if so, what are they so we can do the same? Oh gosh, I'm always learning of new hiccups. Uh, I think think more than, I think more than anything, this is going to sound a little bit pessimistic, I guess, but it's sort of just like trust no one at this point. It's really just being very vigilant. Even if a contractor seems is is extremely friendly, very capable, is on email, is on Dropbox, is saying all the right things. Um, I still, I mean, I've still gotten like a bit deceived by those wonderful qualities a person can have, but then see that their workmanship is terrible. So there's really nothing I can do to anticipate or warn anybody about it. But I think now, you know, I ask to meet with subs more often, even if it's an out-of-town project, I will request the subcontractor's contact information if they're willing to give it. And I will get on the phone myself when I send my initial drawings. And there's just, it's all like I said before, a little bit about control is you're giving your designs and what the client wants. It's not they're my designs. It's the client's designs. It's what they've approved. Giving it to complete strangers that can do whatever with it, you know. So I've just now, even though people can be perfectly nice, it does not mean they do a great job. And I have just gotten my spidey senses about that more and more in tune over the years. But I think it's just always going to be evolving. You never know what you're going to get, which again is why it's important to charge hourly for that process and not be on a flat fee, unless your flat fee is like millions of dollars. I don't know, whatever is worth it. So 
Right. I don't know. You can't, you never know. You know, you don't know what you're, you don't know, unfortunately. Would you say in hindsight, as you look at like your average project over the years, would you say that when you're billing for project management versus versus the design flat fee, which of those ends up being more, I don't want to say lucrative, but ends up being a larger number? Does your design time cost more or typically as you wrap up a project, is it the actual management time that ends up being the more costly side of it? I think it's the management side that ends up being more costly for sure. Yeah. Hands down. Mm-hmm. That's super helpful to know as they start, as people start to think about how to explain it to a client and how to explain the process and why they need to have this much budget allocated for your design fees, even though the design time is only this much. There's so much more time involved in that. Between your own historic renovation, your home is so beautiful. I love it. You did such a fabulous job. Every peak I've really enjoyed getting to see behind the curtain and dozens and dozens of clients over the years. What has been the hardest lesson that you've experienced? I think it's touching a little bit on what I had said before about, you know, trust and working with people that, you know, will just be yes people. And I and my personality is I love responsibility and we have a lot of responsibility with our job and it's a big weight to carry because there is financial responsibility on your client's behalf. There's aesthetic, teamwork, logistical, there is a lot of responsibility and I will like leave me with your stuff. It will be handled. It is on me and it is now like tattooed on me, all of these responsibilities. And I think, you know, that's, I've learned that that is not something that you can expect from others. And some people just don't really care about it that much and just will be, yes, people, you know, no problem. I can do it or I can hit that timeline. Then you tell the client, oh yeah, no problems. So-and-so said that we'll be on time. And then you relay that message. Then you're in the middle and you look like you've messed up. And there's just this, you know, kind of now, now I'm trying to find this combination of, you know, seeing that people will disappoint me, I think, you know, on the job and, and not care as much as we do. But, you know, I, I can't hold them to the level that I hold myself either. So, so some, that, that, those are still hard lessons I'm working through and, and how to, you know, be nice and approachable and fun and friendly while still like slamming the hammer down, but also not being the middleman. So there's, there are a lot of nuances and I don't know when I will have the answer for that exactly, but. (laughs) I feel like as a business owner, really believing and understanding that you can only control what you can control is the hardest lesson. As a business owner, we're so dedicated to our craft and whatever it is we're producing and to rely so much in this industry on other people to execute it, that that is a very hard thing to swallow. So I completely empathize with that being your biggest lesson that some people just, I mean, really just nobody's going to care as much as you do. That's just the end of the day. As you find your new normal as a parent, are there any changes to your process, especially when it comes to construction management that you'll be making? That is a great question that I need an answer for sooner than later. (laughs) I think that the type of projects that I'm going to be looking to take on would have a certain caliber of contractor I'm looking for now that I was not cracking down on as much before. 
just because we've had so many experiences with, I think with also contractors being so busy with COVID and people running around like, you know, like, like, like we all like chickens without heads. There's now like kind of a downgraded level of service, I feel, in our industry where, you know, even though COVID is, you know, it's not really over, but it, it's just, a, there's just this whole, like, you know, it is what it is because, you know, you're lucky to have me here, period. Like there's mm-hmm. like a shortage of materials. There's a shortage of this. There's no shortage of materials. Like, come on, you're just now making excuses. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going on a tangent. I think I'm just going to be looking for contractors that care a lot, probably that are more expensive. So yeah, probably, you know, higher profile projects where we don't have to just do the basics. Like, you know, hi, so-and-so, did you print the deck that I sent that I said, please print in all caps in the subject? Oh no, I forgot. Okay. Let me run to Kinko's. Hold please. You know, we end up doing a lot of like assistant work and I think I'm ready to let that chapter go as I have more important things to spend my time doing. And also I didn't charge my clients for babysitting contractors. Sometimes there's so many things that we do and I'm going to get a little bit more stringent on what I will not be doing moving forward with contractors. These people need to be accountable for their own job and doing a good job at it. All we can do is do the design documentation and check in periodically to make sure we're all on track. That's just something I'm going to have to keep repeating over and over again, but I'm, I'm not going to be calling them, you know, late, late night or texting them being like, are you, is everything in my email clear? Like they can ask me now yeah. if it's unclear. And that's the, what I'm going to be putting forth. I love that mantra for you, Katie. (laughs) As always, I love to end an episode of the Interior Collective with something fun, some sneaky news, or anything you have coming up. Do you have something in the pipeline for KMI that you can share with us? Hmm. I don't know if I can share who it is with. Actually, I know I cannot, but I have a furniture collaboration coming out next year for a big retailer. And that is all I'll say about that. That is exciting. And I already have guesses as to who it is. So I can't wait to see if I'm right. Katie, this was so informative. I know you have saved our listeners hundreds of hours sharing your lessons. Thank you so much for being so open and just candid with everything and dollar amounts and how you charge. It's just the things that you can't seem to look up online. So we appreciate it so, so much. My pleasure. We are all in this together. I'm I'm happy to share. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for joining us today, Katie. I've so enjoyed following along in your personal design journey, watching you blossom as a mother and seeing you thrive as a designer. You can follow Katie on Instagram at Katie Hodges Design and view her impressive portfolio at katiehodgesdesign.com. If you missed any of the links mentioned in today's episode, you'll find the full transcript and sources included in the show notes. You can find more details about all of our episodes outlined at theinterior.co forward slash podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Getting to chat with some of my biggest idols and dearest friends in the industry is definitely the best part of my job and your support means so much. Until next time, I'm Anastasia Casey and this is The Interior Collective.